everyone, and welcome to another episode of Smells Like Business, a podcast for anyone who wants to learn more about the current and future state of cannabis in Europe. Every episode, we talk to different business owners and cannabis specialists, making it easier for you to enter and better understand the cannabis industry. I'm your host, Tom, and today we have Gonzo as our guest. He is a weed dealer from Bristol, and on this episode, he will be sharing his story of how he ended up working with cannabis and what it's like to be a dealer in the UK. We, here at Smells Like Business, believe it's important to learn about the lives of those who are currently working with cannabis in the black market, but we also do not promote or advise anyone to conduct in any illegal activities. Gonzo and I will also be discussing who his customers are, as well as what his views are on legalization of cannabis in Europe. That will be, however, on the next episode in part two. We would also like to stress the fact, a fact that was brought to our attention by one of our listeners, that not everyone who becomes a weed dealer does so by choice or is treated equally. Race, wealth, class, and a whole range of other factors can have a big influence on how a weed dealer is treated by the law. That is why it is so important for us to make sure you understand that this story that we are about to share is one of privilege, choice, and opportunity. This is a topic we completely forgot to cover in our conversation and is something that is important to be aware of when listening to both this and the next episode, part two of Confessions of a Weed Dealer. We would also like to take this opportunity to apologize for this oversight of ours. So, please, when listening to this episode, have an open mind and be aware that this is a story of one man and his own experience. So, hello, Gonzo. Welcome to the show. How are you doing? Thank you very much. Very well, thank you. How are you? I'm very good. I'm very good. So let's start at the beginning. How did you become a weed dealer? Very long time ago. I think the actual beginning, the genesis, was probably when I was about, I think about seven years old. And I was going through some books in my grandfather's house. And I found a copy of The Doors of Perception by Aldous Huxley. And I remember reading it and I I was completely obsessed with the descriptions of the things that he saw and experienced and felt. And after that, I read everything I could possibly get my hands on to do with mind-altering experiences and things. And I read Confessions of an Opium Eater, just stacks and stacks, everything I could. So I was always quite obsessed with the idea of hallucinogens and things like that. And I went to a fairly good school. It was one of the better English boarding schools. And there uh, you're surrounded by a lot of lot of older boys, a lot of younger boys and things. And the availability, I think, of drugs was ever present, surprisingly. Very oh, present. really? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Sort of shocking to think that you've got members of royal families, you've got prime ministers that went to these places and things. I mean, these are the epicenter of England, I think, really. And... Uh, <laughs> The things he got up to is sort of quite hair-raising. Yeah, absolutely a, a fascinating place to be. And, and I, I think the first thing I ever tried was magic mushrooms, I think when I was about 14. And um, I got you know, really, really into these. They were superb. It was some Liberty Caps that we picked on the school grounds. It was a, an absolutely amazing experience. It was wonderful. Yeah, just so colourful and vibrant. And that really... Like opened my mind because we had, you know, I'm sure you had the same thing like back in the 90s when you had people coming around to the school showing you these cases of drugs saying, you know, drugs are bad. They'll kill you. You know, oh, yeah. Uh, one girl took three marijuanas and her ears fell off. 
you know, that sort of complete nonsense. And mm -hmm. yeah, this really opened my eyes to the fact that the world wasn't exactly what everyone told you it was. I mean, this is the mid-90s, and I really like the idea of continuing to do magic mushrooms, and I, I did more and more research. I mean, this is the days really before the internet was a thing. So I started going to the Netherlands when I was about, about 14, 15, during the holidays, flying over, buying these the magic mushroom growing kits and bringing them back to school. And, uh, oh, wow. Yeah, growing them in my bedroom there and, you know, selling them to my school friends. And eventually I got caught. It was actually to do with a still that I built to make alcohol with. You know, had a bit of a party with it. Some people got a bit too drunk, went back to the housemaster in a bit of a state. Yeah, grasped me up and they raided my bedroom and yeah, found stacks of this alcohol. So it was a good night, Vienna. So yeah, I left there. I think I was about 17, something like that. And at the time I was living with, with another family. The mother that was there, well, she was a bit of an aged hippie, and, and we always kind of joked about magic mushrooms and things and, and cannabis and whatnot. She was rather fond of it, and she was a very keen gardener. Mm. We, again, like days before the internet. So... I can see where this is going. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> it's in a very green direction. So we yeah. started growing anything we could pretty much get our hands on in the garden. We had quite a spacious garden. We were growing these... A lot of hallucinogenic plants, you can actually buy the seeds, or could at the time, you could buy the seeds in B&Q or your local garden centre. You know, things like Morning Glory and whatnot, which is a hallucinogen. We, you could buy opium poppies. So we, we had this garden. It was just, it was like a, a pharmacy out there. It was mad. You know? So we started growing a couple of plants in the garden and decided to get into it a little bit more seriously so we we went to our local hydroponics place i say local is about a 40 mile drive that we found in the back of the yellow pages and went there pre-internet again pre-internet absolutely yeah so we didn't really know what we were doing and uh, the chap there was very 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 nice you know he, he asked us about our setup size it was in a wardrobe in a bedroom so he sold us a four plant nft hydroponic kit and we had a few successful runs you know it's very good it takes about about three months to do in total for each run. You know, we get probably about one to two ounces off of each plant, and then that was enough. Eventually, I sort of grew up and I made some friends in Bristol. So I thought, well, this is you know, this is a much more interesting place than where I was living. So um, decided to move to Bristol, moved there, and I was there for probably about about a year, I think, and living the life a bit too much. You know, we were out every single night and. Just getting into various hijinks, just sort of silly kid stuff, really. And then, yeah, I just sort of looked in the mirror one day. I looked a bit just hollow like a shell. I thought, I can't carry on doing this. You know, I've got to do something a bit more productive. So my grandfather had a house in Scotland that had been lying dormant for about 10 years. You know, nobody had been up there. I mean, he died a few years before and nobody was really interested in doing anything with the house. So I moved up there, took up a bit of a stash with me that I had left over and moved to Scotland. Did you not know anyone when you went there? Moved up not knowing anyone. And the house is about a 25, 30 minute walk from the nearest town. I mean, this was a relatively big town for Scotland as well. But it was, you know, still by Southern standards, relatively small. It was a lovely place. People were wonderful. I, I went up with a girlfriend as well. So we went out, you know, went to a local pub. And people just started talking to us. I looked quite different at the time. I had quite a few piercings in my face and things, which is what you didn't see. And people would always come up just to talk to you about it, really. So it was a really nice place to move to. So I thought with the new friends I've made, I'd have a barbecue at the house and 
I'd already set up the three grow rooms you know, going on on the cycle. You didn't waste any time, did you? No. Oh, God, no. No, no, no. Strike while the iron's hot. That's it. You know, time is money. So I invited some friends over for this barbecue. And yeah, we were outside cooking away. And I, I rolled up a joint. And somebody came up and said, is that weed? <laughs> like, with this shocked look on their face. Like, yeah. Like, oh, my God. Guys, guys, it is weed. Like, oh, my God. Can I try something? Yeah. yeah. And um, yeah, one guy said, do you? Could you get any more of this? <laughs> I sort of laughed and said, yeah, I think I know a guy. Uh, <laughs> so I sold him everything I had. And he was in university somewhere in the north of Scotland. Again, a, a very good university. And they had nothing on there. And I, I didn't realise that they all they had was soap bar. And it was, you know, the really rubbish hash. So no wonder they were quite excited when you rolled up and lit up that sweet Mary Jane joint. Exactly. And... I think it was less than a week later, the same guy came down. And this was about probably about a 600 mile round trip he was doing. And he came back down, came to the house, was like, look, I've sold out. Sold out within about two or three days at the uni. Have you got any more? I was like, I won't, but I will in a couple of months. And at that moment, I suddenly realized, because he said, I'll take all you can get. And I said, what if I can get a lot? He said, I will take all you can get. I was like, okay. So at that moment, you know, the light bulbs went off above my head and um, I suddenly thought, well, instead of growing a kilo every month, I've got, I've got 10 spare bedrooms. Why don't I just fill all of them? Then I can sell everything that I've got to, to this guy and I can still sell the things, you know, that I was going to sell to my friends down south. And uh, pretty much the next day I set up this cycle. My girlfriend and I, we moved downstairs to one of the dining rooms has set up all, all 10 rooms and we started growing uh, mother plants. I mean, we had four 10 plant hydro kits in each room. So that's 40 plants in each room. 40 plants in each room. So it was 400 total plants in various stages of growth up there. That sounds like a lot. It was a lot. It was, it was you know, going from a very small scale operation to pretty much like factory sort of uh, production. And what was the timeline with that? Probably about about three or four weeks. I guess you uh, saw the potential and the opportunities straight away. Exactly, and just yeah, just completely went for it. I mean, I you know I've always very much been like that. We were growing at the the height of this. We were getting about a kilo every nine days. <laughs> so I ended up meeting some other people who were marijuana aficionados. And having those guys take larger amounts from me and then sell it all around, you know, all around the town. And it went on like that for, I think, a total of about 18 months. I mean, I'm not going to say all of it was bliss. Yeah, it couldn't have all been hunky-dory. So, I mean, did you encounter any unpleasant situations? The, the funnier incident, I think, that sort of sticks out in my head was a time when I was getting calls from people. And I think it was from this Glaswegian gang. You know, saying that they're going to come by and they're going to pay us a visit. Yeah, I, I started to get a bit paranoid about it. And there was this other guy. I was like, yeah, you know, I've seen the same thing. I've heard it. I, you know, I think I think we should get ready for something. So, um, I mean, I, I was at the time, I was smoking about 20 grams a day. It's a lot. Which, you know, that's, yeah, it's a lot. I don't think the brain is able to cope with that much. 
and uh, I, you know, started to get more and more paranoid and things. So I made a stinger for the driveway because we, you know, we'd all seen these cars going past and getting these calls, and rumours were coming around. Oh God, you know, these guys aren't happy. They're going to come down. And yada 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 anyway so we hit this this stinger in my driveway and uh, what we were doing is we were putting it in there every night taking it out every morning sort of waiting to see if anyone comes up the driveway and uh, we set up these these speakers um on this like tripwire thing so if somebody went over the stinger and pulled this wire we set up these speakers and we had the song uh, wannabe by the spice girls <laughs> <laughs> connected to it so it would start that's great you know, just like really disorient them and uh, yeah we had like this bright floodlights that we kind of half buried in the bushes pointing directly at you know where a car would have come up so they get these blinding lights wannabe would come on we'd come out the house with um we had a nail gun we had shotguns you know it was uh it, it was pretty oh, wow. serious stuff yeah so one night we're all sitting there like convinced this was going to be the night chain smoking and stuff and Got to three o'clock in the morning, four o'clock in the morning, five o'clock in the morning. Then all of a sudden, I, like, I wake up and the sound of wannabes like blasting through the grounds. Like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Get up, run out into the blazing sunlight to find a, a postal worker's van that uh, <laughs> come up the driveway. No. Yeah. Oh God. To deliver a uh, parcel. So we ran out explained to the man that said oh no we live with my grandfather and he's he's a bit paranoid he's got dementia and blah blah, blah and then sort of convinced him not to not to report it for really what was obviously going on and um, that was really good he was pretty cool about it but um okay you're lucky there incredibly incredibly i mean for me that sort of signified the beginning of the end you know just too many people knew about it and, and for me I, i've always used magic mushrooms as a tool i think every time i've i've got to a difficult crossroads in my life and i don't really know what to do i've ended up taking a lot of magic mushrooms and i get really introspective with myself and um, i think you know they're different for everybody and for me i find them incredibly useful i'm sort of therapeutic self-therapeutic tool so i took a load and i thought right okay i just sort of had this trip and i saw my life completely sliding out of view i can't carry on doing this forever and just saw myself ending up in prison or shot or just not in a good place. I thought, right, um, whilst I'm on my trip, I came up with the idea of moving to Bristol, studying architecture and uh, getting a sensible job. And, and that's exactly what I did. I started the shutdown shop the day after. Oh, the day after? Day after, absolutely, immediately. So I told everyone that I'm going. I've had enough of this. Um, I paid everybody off. Within pretty much three months and two days, everything was out of the house. I mean, you know, for all intents and purposes, that was out. Just boarded up the house again. That's it. I'm off. So um, moved to Bristol and uh, I was there for about three months and got a phone call one morning, about eight o'clock in the morning. Picked up the phone and there's a Scottish voice on the line. He said, hello, can I speak to Mr. Gonzo, please? And I was like, yeah, this is me. And he said, this is Detective Wheelerhan of the Strathclyde and Midlothian Police. Uh-oh. Can you come in and talk to us? And my blood just froze around cold. And I was like, uh, which Mr. Gonzo did you want? And uh, he said, we want to speak to Kermit Gonzo. 
And I said, ah, oh, Kermit's on holiday at the moment. He's in India for a few months. This is his brother, Fozzy. And he's, you know, didn't sort of really sounded like he believed me that much. And um, he said, well, you see, you know, it's important we speak to your brother. Can you get hold of him? I said, I don't know where he is. What's this about? And he said to me, well, I can't tell you that's between us and your brother, but it's important he comes in. Can you get him to do that as soon as he gets back? Said, yeah, no problem. I hung up the phone and uh, hid under the covers for about a week, <laughs> I think. I don't know what it's about, but I'm pretty sure that, yeah, it wasn't about a missing library book or something. No, or a speedy uh, fine. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it sounds like you got out of that just in the nick of time, really. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So why did you start again in Bristol? Because, I mean, like you said, in Scotland, it was a close shave and you did promise to yourself you would never do it again. Well, I, I kind of went, um, I went completely, I mean, like I was saying, I was smoking 20 grams a day. And this is another thing, I, I sort of a point that I kind of think is interesting about people who say cannabis is addicted and things. I, I went from smoking that and that, that was just out of boredom, bearing in mind, because it was there and it was expected. You know, these huge, pure joints that I'd roll that had seven to 10 grams in each, it kind of, it became an accessory and it was expected of me to have this around at a, a certain reputation to maintain and um, when I got to Bristol I didn't bring anything with me I just came down with shoe boxes of cash but pretty much nothing from the old life I did retain one room's worth of hydroponic equipment just in case you know anything sort of ever went wrong and I needed money quickly so I moved down with that and I went from smoking an incredible amount of marijuana to smoking nothing I must admit like that that amount it did affect my brain and affected my memory you know I, I felt like I couldn't really think that clearly with it I was just sort of a bit of a mess and after about three or four weeks the fog suddenly lifted you know it felt completely back to normal again wasn't smoking anything at all and went on carried on that way for probably about seven years I think not touching anything else and I owned a flat at the time as a four-bedroom flat and uh, I'd, I'd rent the rooms out there and I had a friend of my wife's who was moving to Bristol and he came over to view the flat and immediately we just became incredibly good friends you know you know the sort of person where you just oh, yep just hit it off exactly like that but in stepbrothers you know did we just become best friends <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was kind of like, like that sort of moment and you know he sort of almost planted that seed if you'll uh, forgive the pun of starting to grow again I mean you know and I kind of thought about it and I didn't really have the contacts to sell it there I'd sort of been out the loop for a while but I still had all the equipment and everything and he was a bit of a stoner and he said I know the people I know where to buy this I know where to sell it so I thought wow well why not you know why not I mean for him as well it was a bit of a bucket list thing and for me it was really nostalgic and just good fun so we went into the loft and it was fairly good. It was an L-shaped loft. And because I had other people living in the house, I couldn't really have them knowing about this. So we decided to build... Incognito. Incognito, absolutely. A bit of, yeah, urban gorilla growing. So first of all, we partitioned off this section of the loft and we put good flooring down on there. We insulated everything. We insulated between the rafters, stuck really good insulation in between all the rafters. And on top of that, we put fire retardant plasterboard. Then on top of that, on the inside was alumized mylar. So if snow fell or anything, or if that, I think it's a bit of an urban legend about the police flying around with infrared helicopters, but just in case it wasn't, we'd done enough to protect ourselves from that sort of thing. Just in case it snows that one time of the year. 
Exactly. So we did that and we built this little mother plant growing room in one section of it. And it was all completely self-contained. And one of the, the best parts, we built this wall across the L-shaped bit from the outside. So you couldn't see it at all. It was completely light sealed. And the eventual plan was to cover the outside in plaster. So it just looked like brick. And it had RVK fans in there. Oh, wow. So it was, you know, pumping out a lot of air. We had charcoal filters in there so you couldn't smell anything. Two 600 watt lights on a light mover. So it didn't get far too hot. We had fans in there. We had everything. And the way we were getting the water out, because there's no way to pump the water out, we'd drilled a hole through the ceiling, through the bathroom light fitting. So one of us would be in the bathroom and would take the light off. And the other one would stuff a hose through the end, put it into oh. these hydro kits, yeah, with a pump and pump all the water out. It was wonderful. The wall was great. It was double skinned, really thick. You couldn't hear anything at all. And we got away with that. But I think with the people living there, they didn't really notice. And there's also a certain element of denial there. I mean, we put a dartboard up there and just tried to convince people the reason we were spending so much time up there was we were playing darts. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so we got away with that. Did a crop, got about a kilo a time from that. Sold that. Then unfortunately, I had to move out of my own flat. So I stopped doing that. And then I got back into selling it because the chap who I lived with moved out and he was sort of selling our weed. And then he went traveling for about six months and asked me if I'd like to take over his mantle and pick up the phone. And, you know, six months I could do with a bit of a cash injection. So I decided to get right back on it. And that's how I got back into it now. So I got back onto the treadmill. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, back on the wagon. And that's what you're still doing currently. Yes, absolutely. So that was Gonzo, who I just want to thank for taking the time. Join us again in two weeks for part two, where we will discuss various aspects of cannabis dealing, such as who Gonzo's customers are and how he feels about cannabis legalization in Europe. Also, make sure to subscribe to this podcast and check out our website at www.smellslikebusiness.com. I've been your host, Tom. Have a green day, everybody. Business.